You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Brothers and sisters, our scripture reading this afternoon comes first from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 28. This afternoon we'll be focusing attention on Zechariah chapter 3, which deals with the fourth vision of Zechariah, wherein he sees the high priest. Exodus chapter 28 gives us information on the significance and dress of the high priest in Israel. Read God's word here as follows. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth with an opening for the head in its center. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he will not die. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, on, as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Weave the tunic of fine linen, and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make the tunics, sashes, and headbands for Aaron's sons and to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place, so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. We'll read also a passage from the New Testament from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 15. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And our text this afternoon is Zechariah chapter 3. We'll pay particular attention this afternoon just to verses 1 through 5. We'll read the whole chapter together. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of the things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen this morning that the book of Zechariah is a book full of, full of hope and promise for God's people. God had promised his people many, many great things. They had been in exile for 70 years, and God brought them back. God was going to strengthen them. They were going to finish building the temple. He was going to return to them and they'd have a relationship with him. It was going to be, it was going to be wonderful. Really? Would it, would it really be so wonderful? With these people who were sinners. These people, you have to remember for centuries, for generations had served other gods. They had rejected the Lord. These people were still so stubborn and sinful. And now they're back in Jerusalem and they're, they're building the temple, sure. But won't they just fall back into sin? How can these people expect 
to receive any blessing from the Lord. This is a question that sometimes we ask ourselves as well. God has given us some incredible promises. We just heard some of the promises in the form for baptism that we receive as children. God's covenant promises, wonderful things. God has also given us promises together as a corporate unity, as a church. God has promised that he's going to defend and preserve and gather his church throughout the history of the world. He won't allow Satan to destroy his church. And then we wonder, well, what what about my sins? Can I really expect such wonderful things from God? Don't I so often make such a mess of things every week again? Don't my sins, don't they make me useless to God? Well, in the vision that the Lord gave Zechariah, this question, this problem is addressed in a very striking way. Zechariah sees a vision of a heavenly courtroom. There's a judge, there's a prosecuting lawyer, and there's a defendant in the dock. And who's in the dock? But none other than God's people. This afternoon I summarize God's word for you under the following theme. The case of the filthy high priest. And we'll see how can God have fellowship with a sinful people. We'll see three points. A filthy accused. Secondly, a cleansing verdict. And finally, a promise in a turban. In his vision, Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest. Now, in the book of Zechariah and also the books of Ezra and Haggai, we read a fair bit about this individual, Joshua. He was one of the the two main leaders at that time. There was Zerubbabel, who was more of a political leader. He was a descendant from David, a prince. And then we read about Joshua, son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest. He was, I guess you could say, the religious leader. These two men responded to the preaching of Zechariah and Haggai, and they began to rebuild the temple, as they said. As a high priest, Joshua was the one who would have shown leadership to the other priests. Once the temple was built, he also would be the one who would take the a primary role in what would go on, the ceremonies in the temple. So you could say Joshua was a man that the hopes of the faithful in Israel, they were pinned on him. Together with Zerubbabel, he would guide the people back to faithfulness and back to a close relationship with the Lord. And Zechariah sees this man, Joshua, standing before the angel, the Lord, with Satan standing on his right side to accuse him. Joshua, their leader, is the defendant, Satan is the prosecuting lawyer, and the angel of the Lord, representing God himself, is the judge. This does not look good. Particularly because of who Joshua was as high priest. In order to understand what Zechariah would have thought when he, he saw Joshua standing there, we need to think back to how the Israelites looked at a high priest. The high priest, together with the other priests, worked in the temple. 
and they would offer sacrifices and perform the ceremonies on behalf of the other people. You could say they were mediators or, or go-betweens between the people and between God. They, they represented God to the people, but they also represented the people to God. We saw that in a particularly striking way in that passage we read in Exodus 28. We read how the high priest, he had the names of the twelve tribes inscribed on his clothing. So then when he would go into the presence of the Lord, in a very real way he was bringing all the people with him before the presence of the Lord, symbolically. So the high priest, he, he represented not just himself, but he represented all the people. So when Zacharias sees Joshua standing there in the dock, he would have realized this isn't just one individual who's in trouble. No, actually all the people, all the people stand accused before the Lord. And the person who accuses them is none other than Satan himself. And to be sure, there's there's so much that Satan could say. These people, God, they, they don't love you. They serve me. Just, just look how often they rebel against you. How often they trust in themselves. How often they trust in their own intelligence and abilities. In idols. See how long it took for these people. 16 years before they actually did anything about your temple, God. They are only focused on themselves and their enjoyment and their comfort. They oppress the poor. And when they actually do get around to worshipping you and fasting, this is only really an outward thing. It doesn't it doesn't touch their hearts. They don't care. Satan could say all these things, and, and he would be right. Actually, if you read through the book of Zechariah, you see that the people were, were guilty of all those things I just mentioned. Satan had so much he could say. Satan stands at Joshua's right side. Now, in the Bible, as you may know, the right side was the side of the person who helped you, the side of your deliverer. The Lord is at my right hand. But now Joshua and the people, they don't have the Lord at the right hand. Actually, they have Satan at their right hand accusing them. This does not look good. And brothers and sisters, Satan, he hasn't stopped his work either. Satan continues to accuse God's people, even though the Bible tells us that today Satan no longer has access to heaven. He's been thrown down. But Satan continues to tempt us. He continues to attack us here on earth. He continues to to whisper in your hearts that you're a sinner. God doesn't love you. God couldn't love you. Look at what you did. Look at what you think. Look at what you do. Now, the reformer Martin Luther, he experienced this in a very vivid way. During his life, he he went through times of deep spiritual depression. In In his mind's eye, he would imagine Satan there standing before him. And Satan would be holding a scroll where he would read off a list of Martin Luther's sins. Do you know what that's like? Do your sins, do your sins also haunt and accuse you? Your weaknesses and failings of times gone by? 
your sins of the present? Do they tell you that you're a sinner and you'll always be a sinner? Striking that in our passage, Joshua, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't utter a word. And what what really could he say? What Satan had to say was true. The people of Israel, the people he represents, and certainly also himself as as an individual, they were justly sent to exile by the Lord. They had deserved it. It was their fault. And even now, even though the Lord had graciously brought some of them back, they still sin against the Lord. And then a very striking thing happens. The evidence is is right there before the eyes of the court. And actually the case hasn't even started yet. Satan, the prosecuting lawyer, he hasn't had a chance to make his arguments. He's standing there ready to accuse Joshua. But before he even speaks, the judge cries out. The judge interrupts the courtroom. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Twice. The Lord rebuke you. Satan's mouth is shut by the command of the Almighty God. The case, as it were, the case is thrown out of court. Satan's not even allowed, he's not even allowed to say anything. How is that due legal process? Is this even even legal? Have you ever read about a judge who did this, just threw the case out of court even before the, the prosecuting lawyer could say a thing? Well, the Almighty God, who is the judge, he gives two reasons for his actions. The first is that the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Many, many years before this, the Lord had said to David that Jerusalem was a city where he chose to dwell, where he chose to put his name. Therefore, the temple was built there, and the temple the Lord dwelt in a special way. That's what God had promised. But because of the people's sins, the Lord had rejected Jerusalem. He had let Nebuchadnezzar come in and destroy Jerusalem. The Lord himself had left Jerusalem. But now, now he returns. The Lord, as it were, the Lord remembers what he said. He remembers his promise. A couple moments earlier in, in chapter 12, or in the visions of, of chapter 2, I should say, Zechariah heard an angel say, The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. So the Lord had already told Zechariah that he was choosing Jerusalem again. So on what basis does the Lord throw out the accusations of Satan? Well, on the basis of his word, on the basis of his promise. He chose Jerusalem. The Lord promised that he was going to dwell with his people, that he was going to make his name there. And so the Lord keeps his promise. None of the sins of the people could thwart God's promise. 
Nothing Satan could say can thwart God's promise. And brothers and sisters, so it is today as well. Today too, we we live by God's promises. God has given us promises as individuals at our baptism. Promises that he would be our God. That he would be our Father. And God keeps those promises to us. God gives us promises as, as a church together. That he will preserve his church. It's true that we sin. It's true that God also disciplines us. But the Lord continues to remember what he said. He continues to fulfill his promises toward us. His promises stand our whole lives. They're always there. That's why the Lord calls Joshua, Is not this man a burning stick, snatched from the fire? The Lord had punished his covenant people through the fires of exile, the fire of Babylon, and he had brought this this handful of people back to the land of Palestine. But the Lord, he would continue his promises through this handful of people, through Joshua, through Zerubbabel, and those with them. He has plucked them from the fire. So today, God continues to work through his church. The Lord never gives up on his people, but he continues to remember his promises. He continues to to call us to repentance and faith in him. How is that possible? How is it possible that people who are so sinful could have a relationship with God? We see a very powerful picture of this in our text. We read, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Have you ever had that, where you've arrived at a function horribly underdressed? Everyone else is wearing their their best suit or their evening gown, and you decide to wear old jeans and t-shirt. You stick out like a sore thumb, everyone sort of looks down their nose at you. Well, imagine then Joshua, who's in the heavenly court, before the angel of the Lord, a majestic angel, and he's dressed here in in filthy clothes. The term used in our text for filth is elsewhere used for excrement or, or vomit. He's disgusting. He's smeared with excrement and vomit. Is there ever a, a better picture of a sinner than this? Sometimes we can we can hide our sins. Sometimes we can put on a, a good front, put on our game face. But not before God. With Joshua, it's sort of like his, his inside has been turned to the outside. There's, there's no way he can hide what he truly is before the Lord. Now for Zechariah, the, the prophet... It would have been particularly shocking to see Joshua standing there dressed in this way. Not only because he was a high priest and hence represents the people, but also because as high priest, he was the one who was going to have to to work in the temple in the future. Now we read in Exodus chapter 28 the sort of clothing that a high priest should wear. 
There was beautiful clothes that was designed to give him honor and dignity. Now all the people of Israel, the Lord commanded them to be morally and ritually poor or pure. They were to avoid ritual uncleanness. But in the Bible we see the standards for a priest, someone like Joshua, the standards were much higher. For example, a high priest was forbidden to touch a dead body. A high priest was forbidden to mourn even for their close relatives. They had to observe strict dietary laws. And every time before they entered the temple to to do their service, they had to wash their hands and feet in water. The priests, as it were, they symbolized to the people total purity. The total purity that's required for serving the Lord. One day every year, the high priest, he had the job to enter into the the most holy place of the temple. That was where the, the ark stood, where God said that he would dwell in a particular way. Once a year, the high priest would enter that room and he'd sprinkle blood on the, on the mercy seat of the ark. And in this way, he would make atonement for the sins of, of all the people. So you can imagine then Zechariah in this vision when he sees Joshua standing there in filthy rags, the first thing he's going to think is, well, you can't serve in the temple like that. You need to be pure, you need to be holy, you need to be clean. And well, if if the priest can't serve in the temple, then what's the sense of building a temple? What's the point of them slaving away and building this temple? Zechariah chapter 3, it takes place some five months after Zechariah chapter 1. So the people, they had gotten to work, and they had been working on this temple for five months already. But if, if the priests, because of the sins of the people, if they could not serve, then what's the point? Why, why build a temple? This is a real, a real depressing scene, you could say. This fresh start, this new beginning they're making with God, it's as though it's, it's smeared with excrement and vomit, just as it started. The people, they, they can't come close to God. They're, they're simply too sinful. The temple was a place where God dwelt, where they came near to God, where the priests would make atonement for the people, where they would have a relationship with God. But now Zachariah sees that the priests themselves are too sinful. They can't have a relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, who today would be comfortable saying that it's any different for him? The prophet Isaiah says something similar about us. Isaiah 64, verse 4, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's that term again. Even the best things we do, the the righteous acts that we perform, the things that we think will make us look good before God and before other people, Isaiah says they're nothing more than than filthy rags smeared with, with vomit. Even our very best works are tainted with the sin of wrong motives, 
with selfishness, with pride, and with envy. They're filthy ranks before God. That's who we are. We're unclean. We're filthy. What can we say? What what can we do? If, like Joshua, we had to stand there in the heavenly court, there'd be nothing for us to say, really. But then we see that, wonderfully, the, the judge, he steps in again. Again, the judge interrupts the court and says something. He he gives a cleansing verdict. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Take away his filthy clothes. And the Lord leaves no doubt about what these filthy clothes represent. He says, See, I have taken away your sin. Which wretched sinner would not love to hear those words? See, I have taken away your sin. I have removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. I will no longer remember your transgressions. Joshua is given rich garments. For Joshua, this was fairly important. Without new garments, he still wouldn't be able to serve in the temple. It's not enough to be just free from sin. But we need to be clothed with with holy robes. The Lord, he does this. He gives Joshua holy robes so that he could serve in the temple. He could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So their sins no longer formed a barrier between them and God. Is this fair? Is this just? What kind of judge is able to to wash away the sins of the accused? Now this vision that we read in in Zechariah, it wasn't designed to give a, a complete theological package, so to speak. But that's a question that would have obviously been on the minds of those who heard Zechariah's vision. And there was really only one answer. It was the Messiah who was to come. Actually, later in the vision that we read, this was made more explicit. We read, Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of the things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. And the branch in those days was was a way of referring to the Messiah. We who live in the New Testament many years after Zechariah, we have an even clearer picture of this fact. The book of Hebrews, for example, deals in very close detail with the relationship between the Old Testament high priest and our Lord Jesus. We read together in Hebrews chapter 9, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is not part of the creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but enter the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having 
having obtained eternal redemption. So Hebrews clearly tells us that the Lord Jesus was a high priest, much the same as Joshua. The high priest Joshua, he pointed forward to the Lord Jesus. But unlike Joshua, Jesus did not offer blood of goats and calves, but he offered his own blood. And through this blood, he obtained eternal redemption for us. So, you could say the great high priest, Jesus, cleansed the Old Testament high priest, Joshua. It was he who made it possible for Joshua to serve as a high priest in that new temple. So that the people could again have fellowship with the Lord. There's something just amazingly providential about this. For what does the name Joshua actually mean? Perhaps you know that the name Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the name Jesus. So the first Joshua is cleansed by the second Joshua. Only the, the creative providence of Almighty God could be responsible for such, such a coincidence. Take off his filthy clothes. See, I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Well, on the cross, the Lord Jesus, as it were, he, he wore our dirty rags. He took our sins upon himself. 1 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Christ said, our rags put on him. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While on the cross, the Lord Jesus, he had his clothes taken away from him, actually. The soldiers took the Lord Jesus' clothes away, they cast lots for them, divided it. But no one gave the Lord Jesus rich robes on the cross. The Lord Jesus hung naked on the cross, exposed, shamed like Joshua. And no one took away his shame. He bore all our shame so that we might never be put to shame before the judgment seat of God. There's a black spot on a castle wall in Wartburg, Germany that eloquently speaks to this truth. You may know that Martin Luther, after his heroic stand at the Diet of Worms, he stayed in the, in the castle of Wartburg in hiding. Well, during this time, he experienced one of his deep spiritual depressions. And he described this in a letter to his friend Melanchthon. At that time, he, he dreamed or he saw in his mind Satan before him, holding a long scroll on which all his sins were written with care. Each of them was read aloud, one by one. Martin did this today. Martin thought that today. And all the while, Satan would mock his pathetic desire to worship God. Assuring Luther that he was certainly going to end up burning in the hell fire. Luther writhed in spiritual agony. 
until at last he jumped up and cried out. He said, it's all true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life, which are known only to God. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. And grasping the inkwell from his table, he hurled the inkwell at Satan, who fled from his mind, leaving a black spot on the castle wall. Brothers and sisters, we have been cleansed from our sins. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness has become our righteousness. And that's how we're acceptable to God. It's an amazing truth. All my sins washed away. And we see that the prophet Zechariah, he, he gets caught up in this truth. And he also interrupts the courtroom. He says, put a clean turban on his head. Well, it's a big deal to interrupt a courtroom. Particularly the heavenly courtroom. But you see, Zechariah, he's, he's passionate about this. Zechariah needs or he, Zechariah says that Joshua needs this new turban. Don't forget the turban. And you wonder, well, why, why is this? What's the point of this turban? Well, in Exodus chapter 28, we read that the turban was a, a significant part of the, the high priest's dress. This turban also had a, a particular plate that was, was fastened to the front of it. We read in verse 36, Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal. Holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue, fasten a blue cord to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. So this turban, it had a plate on it, and on that plate was inscribed, Holy to the Lord. Through this turban, then, this turban was in a way a, a declaration. A declaration that the people were holy and acceptable to the Lord. So in this vision, we have seen Satan as our accuser, standing to accuse us. And we've seen that there's really nothing for us to say. But we've seen the, the grace-wielding angel of the Lord who rebukes Satan, who takes away our filth and our sin, and who clothes us in the righteousness of God. And with this final priestly turban, the Lord wants to assure us that as his people, we are acceptable to the Lord. We are his holy children. This turban, in a way, it, it just underlines everything that Zechariah has seen. So that there can be no doubt that we are holy to the Lord. That we're acceptable to God. This is an assurance, a great comfort. But it's also a commission. We're holy to the Lord, so let's be holy to the Lord. Let us be what we are. Let us live out of thankfulness to God. Let us act as His holy children, fleeing from sin and temptation and living a life to serve and praise God. No doubt Satan would have come again to attack Joshua. 
come when he's down, when his spirits are low, when he had given in to sin, or when the all the trials and difficulties of life had worn him down? Why are you building this temple? Do you think that God could love you? That God could help you? You only deserve God's punishment. And Satan does that to us as well. He finds us when we're weak. He finds us when our spirits are down, when we've been proud because of success, perhaps, or when we're down because we've fallen into sin. You're a sinner, he says. And it's true. We are great sinners. How do we reply to this? Could we perhaps deny it? Or maybe we might bring up examples of of nice things that we've done to people this past week, a righteousness of our own. Now we know that's not a solution. But what we can do is turn to the gospel proclaimed here by Zechariah. We are great sinners, it's true. But we have an even greater Savior. He bore the punishment for our sins. He suffered our shame, our curse, the curse we deserve. And now his righteousness is ours. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died. No, more than that, who was raised from the life, raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so, brothers and sisters, we can be sure that we truly are holy to the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.com dot org.